So I wrote to you, I said, Dear Stefan, I could really use my I could really use your help. My cousin had her first baby on July 8th of this year. Sadly, the baby passed away due to exposure to herpes simplex 1. He was only 12 days old. The funeral is this Saturday, and I will be in attendance. I desperately want to say something to comfort her, but I don't think any words can help. What should I say? What can I do? Do you have any advice? I was thinking about writing a letter to her saying to love the memory of her baby strong enough to try again and not to give up. But is that too strong, too soon, unasked for advice? I am truly at a loss. I cannot begin to comprehend the grief she and her husband are feeling. Any advice, no matter how small, would be helpful. Thank you. God bless. Right. I am again. I'm. I'm so incredibly sorry for you and and her and the whole, the whole situation is is, I mean, heartbreaking beyond words. Do you do you know? I, I mean, I did a bit of reading. Obviously, newborns are very susceptible to grave danger from this virus. They lack immune systems uh, that that can deal with it, and there's not a lot of medical intervention sometimes that seems to be able to help. Do you have any more details about what may have happened? I don't have any specific details of like how the baby could have possibly been exposed to it. I was doing some more just kind of research myself. I was on a couple medical websites and testing for herpes simplex one and two can be very difficult, especially if either the mother or, you know, some of the people are asymptomatic because it can spread through viral shedding as well. And most of the time how doctors will test for HSV-1 is through like swabbing of the affected area, which usually, you know, manifests itself in in blisters. And that's the most accurate way to get a, a diagnosis. But blood work can also be done to kind of find that. But it it's very complex because you can test like the things that I was reading is say like during birth, a mother might have antibodies for HSV one and not HSV two, because this would be like an initial outbreak, not saying that my cousin has HSV two, because it can also spread just through say, if someone had, HSV-1 and maybe kiss the baby or touch the baby because some of the things I was reading that even staff could possibly spread it to the baby. Um, so I have no idea how how the baby contracted this horrible, horrible virus. Um, I just know that the baby was feeling ill and had a high fever. And a lot of the times the babies will stop feeding and so they took him into the hospital he continued to decline and so the emergency got him to a hospital specific for children where he was put on breathing um kind of life support but they of course you know they measure brain scans while on those kind of um, machines in his brain activity was severely plummeting and they tried to put him on antibodies and antivirals 
um, but they had no effect. And then he went into organ failure, and that's when he he perished Wednesday morning. Oh, it's just uh, appalling. I mean, I mean, listen. I mean, I really, really appreciate your sensitivity to what your cousin is going through, and it is hard to know. I mean, I I had a a guy I worked with when I was up north. He was jogging. He was going to get married. We were working up there in the summer. He was going to get married and uh, in the fall, and he was going for a jog, and a bunch of kids had stolen a truck and uh, just ran him over uh, in this sort of dark country road and killed. And I knew the family. I knew the father. And, I mean, it's really hard to know what to, I mean, all your words seem inadequate to the tragedy at hand. So, uh, But at the same time, you don't want to just say nothing because that's also seems kind of cold. So uh, I really do appreciate your sensitivity regarding this. And, and I, you know, thoroughly appreciate how difficult it is to come up with words that can be comforting. So, um, you know, I, I don't have any magic answers. We can maybe sort of puzzle it through together. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also good not to improv this stuff, like just wing it. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've heard from people who are going through the grieving process, they, they want to be heard, they want uh, a witness, uh, and, and so on. Um, my personal feeling is it might be a little bit too soon to say, you can always have another one in one form or another. And I know you're not putting it that um, coldly, so to speak, but I think it's sort of like if you're going through it, I mean, this is a, a silly example, but if you're going through a really bad breakup saying, well, there's plenty of fish in the sea is almost a way of hopscotching over the suffering that the person is going through. Yeah, it's never very helpful. No, I mean, I, I, for sure, for sure. Now, let's talk a little bit, just before we get into maybe some of the specifics, a little bit about the other untimely deaths that you have, um, that you and your husband have had experience with. Oh, yes, we've had uh, quite a plethora in our, our lives of untimely deaths. Um, do you, um, so I guess the first, the first untimely death was when I was... 16 um my best friend had a younger brother so altogether she had four siblings an older brother uh herself her younger brother and then her youngest sister all maybe separated by like two years or so and her brother was also my brother's best friend so we can just call him bob i suppose so so um me, my best friend, Bob, and my brother were all very close. We would, you know, hang out a lot together. And one day, um, Bob was at home with his little sister and his cousin, and they were messing around. And his cousin was high on weed, and they always kept a loaded rifle in their house because... Um, it was their grandparents' house, and when the grandmother was young, she was sexually assaulted. So everyone knew about that gun in that family. I knew about that gun, even though I had never been to that house. And, and where I'm at um, in the United States, it's not uncommon for people to have firearms in their homes. But everyone knew that that gun was loaded. But the cousin decided, either because he was high or 
I don't know why he just abandoned all sense and he aimed the gun at my best friend's brother Bob and Bob had said to him hey that gun is loaded like don't play with that and he fired it anyway and it was a low caliber gun so the thing about guns that a lot of people don't realize is that lower caliber weapons are generally more deadly to people than higher caliber because they don't have an exiting power so the bullet didn't exit his body instead it played ping pong around and the bullet bounced against his rib cavity punctured a lung and then buried itself in his liver and instead of calling 911 the cousin fled the scene and left the sister who I think was so Bob was like I want to say 14 or 15 just started like 8th or ninth grade and um left the youngest sister who I think was probably between like 10 9 or 10 to call 911 try to perform CPR on her brother who was expiring and uh, because the cousin the perpetrator of the crime fled the scene the ambulance did not arrive in time before he he died due to internal wounds and I found this out and of course it was the worst the worst day ever because it was April 1st so everyone is playing jokes on everyone mm. and I was on the internet and this is when it was kind of before texting so it was like I am instant messenger was big it's kind of in the very early days of YouTube so that's how I would spend my evenings after homework is I would get on YouTube and I would listen to music and then I would chat with my friends and one of my friends I would me and said Bob is dead and I was like, no, he's not. You're just like, this is a sick joke. Like you shouldn't joke about that. And then she called me and she's panicking and she's like, could you get a hold of like our best friend and, and all this stuff? And I was like, oh, okay. So when I called them, they were at the hospital and he, he had just expired. And then I had to look my my younger brother in the face and this traumatized him for for a really long time um and i had to tell him that his best friend was dead and because he looked at me you know which is like disbelief because he was like no like that that can't happen like someone can't just be alive and then dead and i'm like no i'm really sorry you know brother that that did happen and he just like sobbed and he gripped me and he was like I don't want you to die mm. and he was very afraid for a long time that you know other people were just going to disappear from his life he's he's doing a lot better now it's been quite a few years but it was still quite a shock um, to everyone involved and um, and what happened to the shooter? He got off. Uh, accidental shooting? It was, 
So, when the police were interviewing the oldest brother, so the oldest brother was very, very bitter towards the cousin, obviously, because he shot his brother. But while talking to police, he said that his cousin was retarded and like the slang derogatory term, not Mm. the actual medical clinical definition. But the police took that as the medical clinical definition. And so he um, he was never brought up on charges or anything. Wow, that's uh, seems like quite a loophole. Um, you think you'd want some verification of that from a professional, but what do I know? All right. Okay. I know that he was like clinically tested in certain things, and of course he had like really high anxiety and different things. But I never was privy to any of the things that they said that he like specifically had. But he was so. I mean, this goes back further into history, but our school, so I don't know if you know this about certain public schools, but public schools will get government pay cuts and benefits, financial benefits for how many people they enroll in special needs programs, regardless on if they are actually special needs or not. This happened to both me and my husband because we went to the same school and we were both diagnosed as mentally slow or um, special needs, even though, um, when my husband was taken to a private, um, tutoring school, he was actually tested as mentally gifted. Yeah. Well, he has you, you used the word plethora earlier, not, not usually in the lexicon. <laughs> yeah. And cause I, uh, I was, I was, um, I couldn't read until sixth grade and I was told my whole life I would never be able to read. And so I remember in sixth grade, they started us, you know, writing our own uh, stories. And I couldn't spell and I couldn't write, but I wanted so desperately to write my own stories because I thought that it was a great escape for some of the stuff that I'd gone through. And so I said, you know, screw these teachers that say I can't, I'm going to do it. And so I just read that whole summer and I went from the very bottom special needs uh, grade tier in my class to I graduated the top 10 of my class. So there was a lot of misdiagnosing and special needs kids at our school because of the government funding and tax cuts. And he was a part of that program. And I mean, it didn't do anyone any good because of the no child left behind policy. He was allowed to graduate even though he never turned in any assignments or did anything, but that's like a whole other ball of wax. Right. Okay. Okay. Your friend died at 22. Your husband's best friend committed suicide at age 22. Yes. Um, so my friend, and this is kind of, I don't want to say like my fault per se, but I, I used to work at the hospital as a, a nursing assistant. And that's when I met uh, my friend that passed away. She had uh, cystic fibrosis. And I remember the first day I met her, she was a patient at the hospital and I was her her caregiver. And I remember um, 
you know, going about to go into her room, I, I would receive my assignment for the patient and we get a brief description of, you know, like their needs and their medical condition and stuff. And the nurses at the nurse's station were casting lots to see what time in the night she would die. And I thought that that was disgusting and grossly unprofessional. And so I went in there and she, um, I don't know if you know what cystic fibrosis is, but cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease that um, you can take in oxygen into your lungs, but you can't actually absorb that oxygen into your blood. So your red blood cells can't carry the necessary oxygen to your organs that you need to survive. So, um, so she was hooked up on a ventilator and she was in a coma and I was her caretaker a couple more times. And I just remember sitting in there and I just would read to her. And then the next time I took care of her, she was awake. And I just made a point to myself because her family was in a different state and couldn't be near her that I was going to be her friend. And I was going to make sure that she, you know, didn't perish alone. And so I would go in there on my days off and, um, it was around Halloween, which was her favorite time. So I decorate her room and I met her whole family and her two-year-old son. And, and, um, one day I just got a call from her mom saying that she was sick in a different hospital and she had pneumonia and she probably wasn't going to make it. And the parents requested me to, to be there because they had to drive down and they didn't know that they would, if they would make it in time. So I was there. And I watched her die. And then my husband's best friend committed suicide when he was 22. Um, my husband tried to do a lot of good things for him because he had a lot of a lot of trauma. And I was friends with him in high school as well. Um, he would have been like a 10 out of 10 on the ACE scale like 11 if it could go any higher like there was nothing that this kid didn't suffer and um he was addicted to to marijuana and my husband would constantly kind of have interventions for him and be like hey let's go up to the the country house and we'll play video games all night long and you're not allowed to you know smoke weed or anything while you're up here with me but you'll get you know three meals a day and what have you, and he had been in prison once before um, for for marijuana, um, I think for at least a couple of months to up to a year. And so my husband hadn't heard from his friend for a while, and I remember him calling me, and he was like, I, I haven't heard from um, my friend in a long time. I hope, I hope he's not in jail or if he is jailed in jail and he's okay. And I was like, well, cause he had made a promise to him the night before that they were going to play a, an online video game together. And he's like, well, my friend never like breaks his promises. He's always there. And I'm like, well, maybe just give him some time. Maybe something came up. And then the next day, um, there was a Skype call for my husband and it was from his friend and he was like, Oh good. And he picks it up and it's his friend's mom telling my husband that 
that his best friend had had killed himself. He um he had hung himself in his closet. And uh it was like a day before the funeral, so me and my husband we dropped everything and made the preparations and and we went to that and that was probably one of the hardest funerals I ever went to because his family didn't know who he was at all. Wait, what do you mean? Like, they, like so... Oh, sorry, I said his name. Um, my, my husband's best friend was a very poetic person. He would write poetry, and he was very sensitive, and he loved to play video games, and the funeral, they only had pictures of him. He was 22, or right around in his 20s, and they only had pictures of him when he was like nine. If you were a stranger and you walked into the service, you would have thought that a child had died. Mm. And they kept saying this phrase, and I had no idea what it meant, and it was so irksome. They just kept saying that he was all boy. He was all boy. Like he liked to play sports. And he was really outdoorsy. And he wasn't. He wasn't anything like that. He but of rich. course it was that lack of visibility that probably contributed to his nihilism, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one could see him. And even there was one story. So one time my my husband's best friend was walking to or he missed the bus so i live in the midwest so towns are very spread apart you have to take a car really to get anywhere unless you already live in town and the high school that we went to was a country town so all the small neighboring towns and even the big city that's closest to us a lot of the kids would go to this school well, he lived in the big city, and he missed the bus one day. And his mom said, well, you have to go to school, so you better walk. And so he started to walk to school. It's like a 15-mile walk just there. And one of the teachers drove up and saw him walking on the highway and picked him up and drove him to school and drove him back. But no one said anything about it. No one called the police. No one talked to the parents. Like when that kind of abuse is so blatant and in your face and like no one does anything, like I, it's kind of hard to not be nihilistic. Yeah, no, there's a moment of despair when you realize that you may not be able to escape a crazy family into a sane world. Yeah, and like I said, he was single mom, kid, you know, boyfriends in and out of the house, rapey boyfriends, boyfriends that molested him. So there was there was no sin that wasn't committed against him. But he was a very, very sweet, sweet boy. You, uh, you and your husband do seem to have a wee bit of a habit of, in a sense, caring for the doomed. Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. Why do you think? I mean, it's, it's some real good that you've done, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing in and of itself, but it is, um, it is a, it's a bit of a downcurrent on the old emotional buoyancy, right? Yeah, that's why I, I left the hospital job and I right, started right. working in food service, other things like that. So me and my husband both have pretty extensive AC scores. I believe mine was a 7 and then my husband's was a 8 or a 9. That's uh, For those who don't know, that's the Adverse Childhood Experience uh, score. So you can go look that up just because I've always got those questions. Like, what does an ACE mean? Okay. Well, yeah. I'm sorry about all of that, of course, right? So I think that's because I remember um, I started listening to you um, a couple years back. My husband introduced me to you and he's like, you have to listen to this Stefan guy. And I started listening to you. I'm like, oh, he talks a lot about politics. I don't know if I'm so into <laughs> back that. Back in the day, yeah. Uh, but then I, because um, I, I used to have a hard time focusing on kind of like you have a very like low and relaxed like calm voice and so when i first started listening to you i'm like oh i'm falling asleep <laughs> yeah i can see that <laughs> i'm sorry but um uh, but uh because i used to like really heavy rock to drone out things but then while i was in my college painting course uh, i started listening to your call-in shows mm. and i was like oh these people are so dysfunctional i can't believe people like this exist in the world. And then the more I listen, I'm like, oh, that person's a lot like me or how I acted in this situation. And I'm like, oh, I've been really judgmental towards these people that are actually a lot like me. I can learn a lot right. about myself through all these people. And um, so I would have a really bad habit of making friends of like coworkers and stuff that were alcoholics and really wild. And I remember having this one friend and I'm like, I just can't stand to be around her. And my husband looked at me and he's like, do you know why you're friends with her? And I'm like, no, I have no idea. He's like, well, she's a lot like your mom. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't really like my mom. So why would I be friends with her? And he was like, well, you're trying to save your friend. So you're trying to save your mom. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and now, of course, with regards to your cousin, you want to be able to, in a sense, save her from her grief and mm -hmm. don't know how. And that's, I mean, acutely uncomfortable. Like, and I'm with you there, like completely. Like, I mean, I tried to save a crazy mother. I just spent 15 years trying to save a crazy world. And um, it's, it's a... It, it's always the possibility of, you know, what I call Simon the Boxer from real-time relationships or repetition compulsion, as some people uh, call it, that mas trying to master craziness is the way that you or the way that I would get a sense of control or, or efficacy in my life. And yeah, you always do have to be careful that you're not taking early childhood experiences and casting them, casting them wide over the world and thinking you've grown all the way up, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that I've had like a, a personal problem with projection in the past. Like I would like when me and my husband very first started dating, like I would put like how I would feel in the situation onto him and he wouldn't feel that way at all. So like for an example, one of 
we've never really fought, but like one of the early things that um, happened to us is, is a conversation that I think men and women have a lot. A conversation that men and women have a lot is I made a statement to my husband saying, I feel fat. And my husband looked at me. He's like, well, then work out. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, he thinks I'm fat. Oh. Right. And, and the, the, important, the important part there is not the fat, but your feelings, right? Why do you, why do you feel fat? What what happened? What changed? You know. Mm -hmm. And then my husband was like, "Well, it's so obvious that you're not fat, but you feel that way. So if you work out a couple of times, you'll feel better." But he was very problem solution, and I was very emotional yep. driven. So I would I would project that onto him. And now, through through your help and just like listening to a lot of the call in shows and and you know more of men's side of things i'm able to project less but i still i can at least recognize when i'm i'm projecting now because that's what i was worried about with my cousin because i try to put myself in her shoes even though i have no idea how to even come to terms with that but i just remember not wanting to be particularly crowded when the other kind of tragedies had happened around me but that doesn't necessarily mean that she won't want to be like what she feels is crowded is different than what I would feel is crowded so she might need more of that support but I'm projecting my more isolationist view on it so right. yeah we'll get to that in a sec it just something popped into my head regarding I, the, uh, the the statement you had I feel fat and your husband like here's the solution Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand man as a whole, like we evolved to be hunters for the most part. And so you can think of two guys, Bob and Doug, out there in the woods, and they're trying to hunt deer, right? Mm -hmm. And Bob says, hey, look over there, there's a deer. And Doug says, I, I don't see the deer. What's Bob going to say? It's right there. Right. The solution, like, because he sees that the guy who can't see the deer, his problem is he can't see the deer. So he'll say, like, it's right past that tree that looks like an old man bending over with the, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's kind of hidden in the bushes and so on. And, and so the problem is that Doug can't see the deer. So Bob wants to help him see the deer, right? It's, it's a technical problem of perception, right? Of, of direct mm -hmm. perception, right? Mm -hmm. Or as opposed to... Um, you know, maybe Doug then says, no, no, it's not that exactly. I just, I feel bad that I can't see the deer. And then Bob's like, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, because then it's like, no, it's right deer. over there. Like, because the thing is, Bob is thinking that Doug can't see the deer. And so just tell him where the deer is. He sees the deer, the problem is solved. But oh. if if Doug is going through an existential aging crisis that his distance vision is beginning to fail him and he's, issue, he's, he's wrestling with questions of mortality and his utility as a functional hunter if he can't hunt as well anymore and whether he's getting too old and what's going to happen to his uh, attractiveness and, and what's going to happen to his status in the tribe and all of that, mm -hmm. right? So I can't see the deer. It could just be um, just... I can't quite figure out where it is, or I can't see the deer because I'm aging and, and mortality and status of the tribe and attractiveness and life cycle and, and all of that. Uh, and so for a lot of times, the man is thinking that the woman is saying, I can't see the deer, right? And, and he's like, it's right over there. <laughs> and, and then the problem should be solved. But sometimes, of course, the woman is saying, well, I can't see the deer because 
uh, my eyes are aging and mortality and <laughs> all that kind of stuff, right? And uh -huh. so one of those is a simple solution. It's right over there. The other one is a lengthy conversation about the cycle of life and mortality, which kind of, you know, brings us back to, I guess, the original question. But knowing the difference between those two things is, um, is really important. I think it's really important for women because I don't know about all women, but I know in my experience, at least from the awful, awful advice that my mother gave me, it's like, no, it's the man's duty to understand you and your needs and you have like no duty to understand him. And I think that a lot of the problems that are in relationship nowadays is just um, men and women, women's inability or unwantingness to understand one another and to just embrace our differences. Yes, I think that's very true. So, I mean, your question, like you say, I feel fat. Well, you didn't say I am fat. You didn't say I've gained 10 pounds. You said I feel. And so the key part there is, okay, what's my relationship with food? Am I overeating because of some emotional challenge? Is there some trauma that's reawakening itself through physical laziness, perhaps a lack of desire to exercise, maybe an incipient depression or low self-esteem. Like, so you're not sitting there saying, well, you know, my, my butt's hanging a little low. Um, <laughs> you're saying that there could be a whole lot of complex stuff going on of which the feeling of weight gain might be just one tip of the iceberg, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. No, and, and, and understanding those two things is, is really important. I remember once uh, in my business career when... A, a job had been quoted with, it was 10 hours, 10 hours to hook this, my system up to an external database, to export the data, have the external database run its program and re-import the data and keep a history and so on, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I was not involved in the estimate of this 10 hours. And yet I was responsible for making sure that it all worked. And that was a real mess. That was a really complicated mess. And it just, you know, I blew past the estimate and uh, the customer was not particularly happy. And, you know, the, the salespeople never like going back to ask for more money, but I'm responsible for budgeting and all of that. Anyway, so after wrestling with this for, I think, close to a week, uh, I was getting close. But um, uh, anyway, I just, I got off the phone and the, the customer was still unhappy. And listen, I mean, of course, I could understand that. He'd been quoted 10 hours and, and I was saying it was going to be longer. And he's like, well... I'm talking to you, so I'm mad at you. And I'm like, I can't just say, well, I didn't approve this because I'm the tech guy, right? So the idea that he had quotes that weren't approved by the tech guy for technical work. And anyway, so when I got off the phone and I just like I threw a pencil across my office. And I was re really upset. And the upset, of course, wasn't over the 10 hours versus the number of hours that I was working on this. I went out for lunch with a friend of mine and we had like a, nice, juicy two-hour lunch uh, talking about all of the problems in the business. And it went pretty deep. And it went deep, of course, not just in the business, but into my history, my childhood. Like it just, there's sometimes it is just the, the tip of an iceberg. Like if you have kids and you're walking along the road, particularly if it's a gravel road or a dirt road or a path or something like that, your kids will usually be rock collectors, like they're just shiny rocks, cool rocks, maybe there's gold in this one, that can, oh, maybe there's a fossil. And so what happens is you spend about an hour going about 100 yards, because you got to stop and dig up all these little stones. And 
sometimes, of course, what happens is you try and dig up a stone, looks like it's just a little stone, but it's the top of a big boulder, right? And, and you can't, like you're either going to try some way to dig all the way around it or you just can't get it out of the ground. And knowing the difference between the pebbles and the boulders in conversation, even though on the surface they may look similar, is pretty important. It could be, of course, the case that it's a stone. You just pick it up. Oh, you just lose a little weight. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Or it could be something deep and major. And knowing those two is, is pretty key. Uh, and, of course, all the gradations in between. So I just wanted to sort of mention that because I do know that a lot of people have these challenges when it comes to communication in relationships. And a lot of people, and men in particular, feel that they just want to, you know, just pick up a pebble, right? And it's like, whoa, that thing's huge. <laughs> How far down does it go? How wide does it go? And then suddenly, you know, like you see these videos, of if there's a flood, you know, someone walking along and they suddenly walk into a manhole, uh, an open manhole or something, and bloop, they just kind of disappear uh, into the depths. And knowing the difference between the two is kind of important. Men oftentimes will think it's a pebble when it's a boulder. A lot of times women will think it's a boulder when it's a pebble that can be easier to solve. But negotiating those two is, is pretty important. Oh, yeah, I can I can see that for sure. And a lot of the conversations that that I've had with like people and and, and my husband too, because sometimes I'm like, look at this boulder, ah, and he's like, but it's just like this tiny thing, like <laughs> just calm down for a second and think about it logically, and then I do it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's why I married you. Right, right, right. And other times he'll say it's just a, a pebble and it is a boulder, and he needs to dig deeper. I would assume to solve to solve the issue. All right. So I appreciate that little uh, sojourn, that little sideswipe. Uh, but so let's uh, get to your cousin, your cousin. Now, I don't know what to say to her, obviously, um, because it's your relationship with her and it's you. So obviously there's no point giving you a script. It wouldn't mean anything and it would probably be worse than saying nothing at all. But the thoughts that I had about all of this hopefully will have some, some utility. Now, there's stuff that I, I would, like when I have something challenging to say to someone, there's stuff that I will know for myself that I won't communicate to the other person. It just gives me a kind of context. So the context is um, we were evolved for a lot of mortality, a lot of infant mortality, right? As, as you know, uh, before sort of the modern era, and by that, like maybe 150 years of, of medicine, maybe 100, and, 100 years of, of medicine and so on, um, like up to half the babies died. And they would die in just this kind of way. You know, yeah, there's, very... there's a quote, I think it's from Sartre, or maybe it's Camus, who says that the natural state of things is microbes. You know, cleanliness, health, soap, <laughs> plumbing, that, that's all willpower. Everything else is just blech, right? So uh -huh. we, we are kind of evolved, and there's a, a wonderful moving passage in Uncle Tom's Cabin where there's a mom who's got the drawers full of the baby clothes of the babies who didn't make it. She can't bear to throw them out. It's very painful. But we have some evolutionary capacity to survive infant mortality because it was so common throughout human history. Now, that's not a perspective that I would say to your cousin. It's just something that, that I would have in my own mind regarding all of this, right? It's sort of like mortality. As we all age... We ourselves feel that mortality and, and death is a sort of personal disaster, but there have been hundreds of generations of human beings who've all lived and died, and a lot much earlier and with much more suffering than we'll ever 
have, and they managed to navigate it. So although it may feel like a personal disaster and a personal tragedy, we are kind of wired to go through the arc of life and, and find a way, even to our own demise, in some manageable context. So that's the one thing. Now, the other thing, of course, is that infant mortality has become so astonishingly rare these days that although we have this evolutionary capacity to process this kind of grief, because if we became paralyzed with grief every time a baby died throughout our evolution, we wouldn't survive as a species, right? We have to have some um, strength within us to surmount these things, just evolutionarily speaking, but because they've become so rare, the horror of the situation has become so intense and so personal that that's the challenge, I think, that she's facing. You know, if we had 50% infant mortality... You know, there's some cultures, they don't even bother naming a baby till it's six months or a year old. Why bother? Well, that's where, like, you know, the traditional birthday comes from is it was before it was a, a naming day. Right. And that's right. That's would... right. So we, we didn't even really get attached to to all of that stuff. And it's it's just so it's just so crazy because like really, really advanced like children's hospitals, because I've worked at a lot of places that, you know, we we raise donations for for these hospitals and you have the little, you wear the premature diaper on like your work vest and it has a little sticker on it that says, you know, ask me about this diaper. And it's just this tiny little diaper. It looks like it would barely fit on like a Barbie doll. And these are little preemie diapers that mothers will give birth and like, you know, barely over their second trimester. And they can save these little babies that weigh like maybe three pounds and one of my coworkers, he had um, his girlfriend was giving birth and his baby's intestines actually formed outside of the baby's uh, abdominal cavity. So the hospital was able to perform a surgery and, you know, get everything, all the plumbing back in order and the baby lived. And so when you're surrounded by these almost miracle they, they are miracles relative to all yeah. of our history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have these miracles, so your hopes are so high because it, the, the infant death rate is so low, which is so, so great. I would, I would, you know, not want that to change at all. Um, but yeah, so that just almost makes it even harder because you hear about these miracle, these miracle babies that can live. Right. And then you're like, wow, it's just a little virus baby was born healthy normally you know no heart problems no you know signs of illness like just happened to get a fever at home and then it's like just a, a gust of wind like sweeping the dust away and just all of a sudden it's gone yeah yeah no i uh uh, when I was a kid, I knew a family, the, the, the daughter at the age of two, perfectly healthy, gets meningitis. Half her brain is gone, and it's, uh, I mean, that, that's a, that's a never-ending, in many ways, kind of tragedy. So, um, yeah, so we are not particularly great at understanding the fragility of life these days. We've had, you know, and, and we've had this kind of congenital inability to, uh, I don't say process suffering, but to 
look at someone who's suffering and not feel, well, we must move heaven and earth to stop that suffering. I mean, obviously, you can't do anything to stop this woman's suffering because you can't turn back time. You can't make the baby alive or anything like that. But just as a whole, I'm sure that she has it within herself to deal with this loss. And so it will always be a source of immense pain for her, uh, but uh, we, we have found ways in our evolution to survive, I mean, sometimes the deaths of half a dozen children, you know, back before birth control when there was this sort of mandate to um, not avoid pregnancy and so on, when women could lose five or, or more babies over the course of their life. And mm-hmm. that's still part of who we are. It's not like those genetics have completely vanished. And again, this is nothing I'd sort of say, well, compared to history, you know, like that, that's mm-hmm. not going to help her at all. But I think just as a whole, it is always a big challenge as to how much we participate in the horror that people are experiencing. Because if they're experiencing horror and we're like, oh, you know, this is the worst thing, in a sense, that's a beast we feed within them. And again, mm-hmm. this is nothing yeah. to do with anything you would say to her. But I think it is kind of important to remember that while this is a tragedy virtually beyond words, we do have the capacity to survive and uh, even to some degree flourish after these kinds of situations. And that's always the big challenge is how do we turn these kinds of situations from the sinkhole of horror that could take us down forever to something that can give us a renewed commitment to life that's always the big the big question and so i'll just give you the thoughts that i've had and and you can let me know what you think so you know there's there's two aspects to life that that are i mean you you obviously get them to a large degree despite your youth because of the history that you've had with people who've died but we are both innately decaying and intensely fragile as human beings and you know you get hit by a bus you get a sudden ailment uh, some people like your, your kid goes to a party i was just reading this in the paper the other day your kid goes to a party you come home or the kid comes home and and next thing you know uh, everyone's infected with covid and most people are doing okay but uh, the, the dad ends up on a ventilator in in the hospital he can't breathe right that's or, or the the Broadway star who got COVID and and uh, you know lost a leg and and uh, ended up dying. Uh, he was a um, he played tough guys in in Broadway musicals, I think it was. And so we are innately decaying. In that we're gonna grow up, we're gonna age. You know, I I my my entire sprinting at full tilt days may be behind me because when I sprint full tilt, it's like it feels uncomfortable afterwards. It's not quite pulling a muscle, but it's just not quite solid right and i'm do my bike machine i do uh um leg pushes and I, so i you know i'm trying to stay but you know 54 coming up uh it's uh it's just the way of all flesh right so we are going to decay we are going to uh, fall apart like i could i always remember when i was younger playing tennis with older people and it's like why don't they just run for the ball oh that's why <laughs> because uh-huh. your body could really make you pay for it in ways that you don't even think about when you're young so, the, is, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that it is just wild that, because like when you're a child, you think that everything kind of stays the same because you're growing at such a faster rate than everyone around you. Mm. I remember one of 
the the best compliments I ever paid my dad is my I was at my grandma's house and there was a picture of him in high school and he had a perm, a mullet perm, which is kind of funny because he has a, a mullet to this day. And I was like, Daddy, look, you look the same from when you were in high school. And he was so excited because he was, you know, in his late 30s or whatever. Right. But now I, I'm watching him and he's still a very fit man. But like, you know, hair starts to get thinner and you have to work out twice as hard to keep that that muscle. So just like that. Well, and, and that, I, I have to, um, I really, just over the last maybe four to six months, I've had to pull back about 10% on my workouts. I just, I just have to, because uh, I can't keep doing the same. I mean, I've been basically doing the same workout since I was 17 or so, off and on. And uh, just, yeah, it's just not, not the way things go. And, and I, it's, it's not, you know, if you keep injuring yourself or keep getting aches and pains, it's not going to help your exercise uh, much at all, right? So that's just natural. I mean, obviously, even Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't do the same workout that he did in his prime. Guy can guy wrecked his uh his knees with uh, all those deep knee bends and all that so i don't think he juices like he used to no i would hope not i would hope not and i think it's it's something that uh, gosh even even tiger woods was saying the other day when he was asked what do you regret he's like well i really regret running so much in my 20s because my knees are just destroyed right because it's really yeah. really rough so the the the, the general decay you know because she's a young woman because you're a young woman because this was a baby that's not I think part of the general equation, but there is something about giving birth that reminds you of mortality, right? Which is, oh, look, here's a new new baby. Why is there a new baby? Because I'll be gone one day, mm-hmm. right? That's that's why, right? That's you, you know, it's like your old car is not very happy about you shopping on Auto Trader for a new car because <laughs> it means he's going to the junkyard, right? Yeah. And it's the same. So there is an, an intense sense of mortality that is associated with just becoming a parent, and a lot of people who are really alarmed or scared by mortality will avoid things that mark the passage of time because the passage of time you know what's that old there's that old friends episode where uh, rachel is, is turning 30 and she's dating some goofy young guy who rides skateboards in the hallway and stuff and it's depressing right um and i did a show recently uh, with um my daughter about oh gosh that woman from uh well she was a girl back in the day the harry potter oh um emma watson emma watson thank you see a couple of years ago i'd have had that right on the tip of my tongue i'm sure but uh you know she's passing 30 and and um taylor swift's hitting that and a lot of people like to avoid that kind of stuff and avoiding becoming a parent is a way of avoiding mortality because why do we need babies because we're gonna die why do we need new people? Because the old people don't make it. And we have, of course, sealed away a lot of, you know, old people go into old age homes or you barely see them or whatever it is. So we've kind of sealed off that late conveyor belt falling off the cycle of life thing from people, right? <laughs> now, you, of course, working in the hospital and, and uh, having death around you are very, well, perhaps too aware of the fragility of life. But so life is fragile just in the passage of time. The decay is inevitable. But life is also fragile in that you could have a heart attack during this call, right? I, I could, uh, uh, my, my, my cancer could come back tomorrow. I doubt it. But you know, you got to live like, you know, my father just uh, died. I mean, pretty good, uh, long life. I mean, this is a really good one, but long life. And so for me, 
the question with regards to this, this awful death of this baby, it, it is a complete reminder of the fragility of life. Now, what do we do when we stare straight at the house of cards called our life, like our actual physical continuance of life in this universe, right? Because when you're a kid, you know, you, you feel like the Empire State Building, like I could take a plane to my belly and I'd be fine, right? When you get older, you realize that it, it's not concrete. It doesn't go 300 feet into the ground. Um, it doesn't have steel buttresses. It's a house of cards. And, you know, we can do things to protect ourselves and exercise and eat well and so on. And that's, that does a lot. But we are a house of cards. This baby was a house of cards. Like one person with one cold sore kisses the baby one time and the baby burns up uh, in, in a fever and uh, dies uh, within a couple of hours. I mean, that's, that is the fragility of life. And it is, frankly, tough. Because we either live these shallow lives avoiding the reality of that, which has become impossible for her and, of course, has been impossible for you for some time, as is the case with your husband. We didn't even get into his father's death a couple of years ago in a motorcycle accident, but I think we kind of get that we're, we're aware of the fragility of life. And what do we do with the knowledge, the sort of deep knowledge of how fragile life is? For me, it wasn't that I was surrounded by... I mean, I do remember as a kid playing, I lived, it sounds like a fancy schmancy thing, it wasn't, it was a pretty, it was a rent controlled low rent, it was called an estate, it was a bunch of council homes, and I was playing sort of out back, out back where the, the guys on welfare or unemployment would sit around in their no armed t-shirts drinking beer all day, and uh, I was playing back there and kids were like, there's been a car accident, and I ran up to the street, and there was, in fact, a, on the main road, uh, there was a, uh, a car accident, and uh, they were pulling a woman out of the car, and she did not look good, man. She had blood all over her, and uh, it was not, uh, it was not, I mean, it's kind of, the pulling her out of the car, and you, you, you're thinking, like, maybe there's no bottom half to her, so, like, it was that bad, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, of course, I was a little kid, and I don't know what happened, uh, and, and all of that, and I do remember one other time seeing a woman just stretched out on the sidewalk not moving, uh, people gathering around her. And again, she could have just fainted, could have been, could have been in a number of things. And um, as I've said before, a friend of mine, but I hadn't been friends with him for some time because of his violent tendencies that emerged sort of mid-teens. But uh, yeah, he um, died in a motorcycle accident after spending a good deal of his youth doing crazy dirt bike tricks. Uh, just kind of caught up with him, I guess. I remember you, you talking about about him yeah so what do we do uh, but for me sorry for me the, the big fragility was sanity right okay it's gonna get taken out of context i'm sure but that's all right oh no so no. so for me like i can see the cnn headlines now uh yes that's right podcaster admits mental fragility but no seeing the fragility of people's sanity you know i mean see i, I saw my mother of course and a couple other people in in around just went either loudly or quietly crazy over time. And, and seeing the fragility of sanity is something that is pretty sobering. Uh, it is pretty sobering, and it does, of course, I, I hope at least it did for me, try and give you sort of best practices and, and be rational. Because, because here's the thing, and so going back to your cousin, and this is all orbiting the, the topic, right? But the temptation, of course, is from the religious 
perspective that you know the baby has a soul and uh, you will rejoin your baby after death and 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 your baby will be uh, God's uh, baby and and it's a it's a temporary parting not a permanent right now as you know um, as as a non-religious person I can't get to the rejoining uh, after death aspect of things and um uh, I, I know that you have some religious uh, thoughts, some religious beliefs, so we don't have to get into that particular debate at the moment. And it really does depend, of course, what your beliefs are relative to your cousins, uh, if you are both religious and believe in an afterlife. That's certainly one approach to take. But that's not something that I would be able to go up and say to to someone. But what I would say is life is incredibly fragile, and we forget that a lot because we've been shielded from mere, raw, brutal nature for almost all of modernity, certainly since like, post-Second World War. I did a speech many years ago at the University of Toronto called Mother Nature is a Sociopath, and she kind of is, right? I mean, this stupid microbe, this, this virus, rather, sorry, this herpes simplex 1 just tears through the baby and... and ends the baby's life. It's, but there's no malevolence. It's just reproduction, reproduction, reproduction. And um, so we have been kind of shielded from the raw brutality of this kind of stuff a lot. And when it does, the, the lightning does strike, uh, particularly in this kind of context, it just reminds us that we are to, all to some degree hanging by a thread. We are all hanging by a thread. Now, We've got a pretty strong thread, so to speak, because we've got modernity, we've got antibiotics, we've got surgery, we've got um, beep, beep, beep in your car when you back up something. We've got the blind spot lights uh, on the mirrors for some people. Like all of those things help. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to diminish any of that. You know, life expectancy, it's falling now, uh, I think, to for some demographics in, in America in particular, but as a whole, you know, up quite a bit. And Sort of people forget that in the past, if you made it past the age of five, you probably were going to go the full distance, right, as a whole. I mean, absent war and and disease or starvation or whatever it is. So we have been shielded from this for so long that we kind of think of life as a whole lot more robust than it really is. But this is a very powerful reminder of just how fragile we all are. Oh, no, I got sting song in my head. But, and, and so what do, we, what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with this very deep and very powerful knowledge, A, of the inevitable decay, and B, of the bottomless fragility of our existence? Well, for me, what I do is, A, I try not to waste time. But again, that can become kind of a workaholic obsession to the point where I can't waste any time. It's like, well, can you enjoy it? No, but I can't waste it. <laughs> so that's, you know, got to have your relaxing and enjoyable time too. But in particular, to me, the brute force decapitation scenario that's either a short term through some disaster or illness or long term just through the passage of time, that reminds me to truly invest in and maintain the quality of my relationships. That's really, really important for me. I mean, what can you get out of something so absolutely terrible in this context? Well, I think you can get out of this, life is short, we are very fragile, and don't leave things unsaid that need to be said. 
don't avoid making apologies where you need to make apologies. Don't avoid asking forgiveness where you need to ask for forgiveness. Don't avoid standing up for yourself if you need to do that. Invest in your life, in your courage, in your morality, in your integrity. Invest in your relationships. And you know that old saying about married couples, don't go to bed mad. It's not a, not a bad not a bad idea. If you've got to stay up half the night to work something out, do it. Because like that old poem that I recited when I was a kid, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray my soul the Lord to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray my soul the Lord to take. And this, if I die before I wake, I mean, it's a little weird, given that to kids, but we understand that this came out of a time where that was a whole lot more probable than it is now. And, you know, in, in the past, you know, you get, you get one bite from a rat and you could die. You, you eat one, one piece of bad food. I'm sorry? I said one bite from the flea on the rat. Yeah, one bite from the flea on the rat. Yeah, yeah, Black Death style, right? So I wouldn't necessarily give the invest in your relationship speech on Saturday, but what no, you can, what you can, because you don't want to give. I mean, again, I'm just my suggestions. I mean, obviously, it's your, it's your, 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 the final decider. But I think if I were you, I would talk about your thoughts about it. Like this reminds me of the fragility. This reminds me of our need to, to speak and to be courageous and to love and to forgive and to, you know, what is the opposite. Of life. The opposite of life is not death. The opposite of life is pettiness. The opposite of life is erasing the potential grandeur of your days with little upsets, little fears, little vengeances, little, 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 little. That to me is the opposite. Death is not the opposite of life because death and life are two sides of the same coin. It's like saying that the tails is the opposite of the heads on a coin. No, they're both still on the coin. Right? So we only have life because of death. We are only here because you need new people. Uh, you and I happen to be the new people. You're newer than I am. But we're only here because of death. So you can't say that life and death are opposites because they're innately intertwined. It's like saying the two trees that grow together are opposites. They're not. So what is the opposite of life? The opposite of life is wasting life. The opposite of life is wasting life. And how do you waste life? Usually through, uh, through pettiness, through avoidance, through fear, through living small. And, and so for you, you know, what's the best that can be done to honor this poor, poor baby who died? It is to try and extract as much commitment to life out of the presence of death, of death as possible. That's the only, I mean, it doesn't make the death, obviously, any less awful, but it is always the question, what is the greatest potential good we can extract out of these terrible, terrible situations? What is the greatest good we can extract out of these terrible, terrible situations? And it, to me, it does fall to just a brutal reminder of our decay and fragility. And one of the, I think the first video I ever did was live like you're dying. If, if you have some illness that's diagnosed with you tomorrow that doesn't give you much time to live, what would you do? Well, 
it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Like one day, with, with good luck when we're old, but one day that doctor's going to come into the waiting room or to our hospital bed, and he's not going to be carrying anything. It's always good when the doctor comes in and they're carrying something because then they've got something to discuss. But when he's not carrying anything, and he comes in and he says, well, like, I'm sorry, but we've done all we can do. Uh, we, we can make you comfortable. That's all we can do. That's going to happen. Or something like it, or maybe you'll die in your sleep and it will be unexpected and the poem will have come true finally after many decades. But I think about this, and of course I didn't think about this when I was younger, but I think about this now when a, an ambulance goes screaming down the street, you know, given that Doppler shift, you know, you know, you know. Well, one day that ambulance is going to have you in it and it's a one-way trip. You know, most times it's, you know, hopefully it's a two-way trip. You, you, oh my gosh, I've never been in an ambulance, but, you know, you get to the hospital, they fix you, you go back home, right? But one day uh, you, you, it, it doesn't go back home. Like, there's nothing to take you back home because you're in the hospital, you stay in the hospital, and you die in the hospital. It's going to happen. One of these scenarios is going to unroll, without a doubt. And, I mean, I've obviously been thinking a lot about regret lately, and I just I can't quite get there. I can't quite get to regretting things that I have done because the option is simply then to silence yourself about important issues out of fear and a thirst for the approval of censorious people. And so I hope that this kind of death can give people a sense of how much we do need to commit to life and how much when we remember our fragility, it doesn't have to be something that paralyzes us. In fact, I think that the paralysis is the pretend immortality that we generally have floating around in our heads, a lot of times encouraged by a pretty feckless media. But how do we honor the smallest grave in the family? How do we honor the smallest coffin in the family? It has to be something to do with shaking off pettiness, resentment, guilt, shame, and committing to as deep an embrace of a transitory life as humanly possible. That doesn't do anything, of course, to bring the baby back, but it does do something, I think, to bring more life to the people in the room. I think that's really profound. I think that that is a big place where there's an answer in there to at least because what I was struggling with and this is it was a dangerous mindset and my husband pointed it out to me and and luckily since he he pointed it out um I've been able to deal with it but there was um there was a, a lady I used to work with and she used to she was like a meth addict and she um she had four kids all from different dads the baby that she had just turned 1 years old from a uh, she entered into the relationship 
with a married man, broke up their marriage, and had his baby. And the day my cousin's baby died, I saw just that post on Facebook, like her baby turning one. And I felt such a rage of injustice because I'm like, there's, you know, this married couple that came together under God, you know, out of love, not out of, you know, any kind of, I mean, of course, there's always lust involved in relationships because hopefully you're, you find your partner attractive and that's part of life too. It's why we're here, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like, so how come the meth and, you know, the meth addict who broke up a marriage for selfishness, her baby gets to live and this other baby doesn't. And that's like, life's not fair. Like, I understand that, but it's still just hard to not feel that injustice and that is a very dangerous mindset and I think that's one of the the great temptations is to feel that way and is a way to because even with all of the other deaths that me and my husband have both gone through there was always someone at fault or like a, a reason behind it like even like the suicide there was that profound suffering and how my my husband's father died a lady just pulled out in front of him and he was a skilled motorcycle driver but he couldn't get out of the way in time and he just slammed into her and she also didn't even though she got community service even though she didn't look both ways she just pulled out in front of someone and he tore his aorta and with my friend who was in the hospital like she had a genetic disease that was progressive that is known for its horrible peaks and valleys. Like they look like they're soaring on top of the world. They don't need oxygen. And then suddenly they, you know, get a cold or get pneumonia and then they're in a coma on the vent. And like, of course, like the virus is what, what caused the baby to die, but it's, it's not like, um, it's not like, even like with my friend, it was the cousin that pulled the trigger. He had a choice in it. He chose the wrong thing, but then you can, it's easy to cast a blame on someone or something. And that's like, I think the easy default way that people handle grief. And so I think the admission to the innate decay of humanity and just the fragility of humankind, I think that there is a lot of grace in the understanding that because people don't really talk about grief, even my friend, uh, the matron of honor at my wedding, um, in the middle of my wedding preparations, she, she miscarried her baby. And, and, um, like women, they don't talk about their miscarriages or how it impacts them and of course I mean my I just like I told her I was like don't worry about anything like I'm here for you I I was she I took over her her planning kind of schedule it was easy at you know we always we made it work we're very very close um 
but you know it's just so such a different kind of thing to have this little this little one that didn't right no and the the miscarriage thing of course that's still something that is beyond the realm of most science you know the good a significant proportion of, mar of of pregnancies, as you know, and in miscarriage, I've heard a variety of estimates, 20%, 30% or so. It's way more common than they make it seem because even so I was, I was working in a, a, uh, like a, the restaurant industry in, in, uh, middle and upper management. And it's pretty physically demanding work. And most of the women that were pregnant, either had very complicated pregnancies due to the stress or um, they miscarried. And so that's when I kind of, me and my husband, we've been trying to, to become pregnant. Uh, I haven't had any luck so far, but um, I, made the, I made the choice to go ahead and leave that field even though it paid extraordinarily well. But I thought that the stress alone might, mm. might terminate a, a pregnancy. And I kind of weighed the paychecks as opposed to the risk. And I kind of thought, you know, um, any risk of that might, wouldn't be worth it. Cause I don't know if I would have been able to, uh, forgive myself because of that. You look for the cause of death so you can either try to avoid it or, you know, put blame and I think that that can that is just the the temptation of trying to rationalize death instead of at least recognizing that it is a part of just our human fragility and our our um, decaying nature well and your or the woman you knew who was the drug addict who'd broken up a marriage who had a child and the child lived see I mean that's this is something that I thought about in my Christian days, and there's still a pretty solid Christian part of me. And it goes something like this. Why are we good? Why do we tell the truth? Why do we honor virtue and try to embody it? Why do we do that? Well, we don't do it because we, we shouldn't do that because we're afraid that our babies are going to die if we don't. Mm -hmm. You can't bargain with truth or virtue. It is something that should be pursued for its own sake. And so saying, well, you know, if, if you're bad, your baby's going to be more likely to die, that's not virtue anymore because you're not choosing mm -hmm. it for its own sake. Because then it's cause and effect and not well, it's, You're being threatened or bribed to be good. I and mean, the moment you're threatened or bribed to be good, it's no, no longer good, right? It's no longer virtue. Mm -hmm. It has to be pursued for its own sake. And sometimes against odds and obstacles that seem perhaps insurmountable. But we do it's have to pursue like, virtue for itself. And if we're like, well, you know, but my baby's much more likely to survive if I'm good. Well, then you're pursuing the baby's survival, which is perfectly understandable, but the virtue is not for itself then. It's, it's the old thing, like what they say, virtue is what we do when we can get away with not being virtuous, right? Virtue is what we do when we're alone, when we're, you know, if, if you knew for sure you could get away with some immoral action, would you do it? That's that's the interesting question, because if we say, well, sure, I mean, I'd steal this whatever if I knew I wasn't going to get caught somehow. Well, then we are not 
we're not pursuing virtue in that situation. We're simply uh, we're simply um, trying to avoid negative consequences. And there is, of course, I mean, there are some there are some aspects of catastrophe that are under our control. I mean, as as you know, no disrespect to your father-in-law, of course, but riding a motorcycle is risky. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody wishes ill, and nobody wants to justify anything, but there is risk involved. And having a baby, getting pregnant, having a baby, there are risks involved. And you know, sometimes we we just come up snake eyes, and that's part of the natural universe that God Himself should not fundamentally be God himself should not fundamentally be choosing whether babies live or die based upon the personalities of the parents mm-hmm. I mean you understand that if a human being tried to do that we would consider that pretty monstrous right oh you're a bad that's person it. so your baby gets to not live I mean that's that's not just a fair we would just call that the DNC <laughs> yeah well I guess so right so trying to find look we we always want to find causality in these things and sometimes it's right you know hey if we don't wash our hands we tend to get sick so we want to find that causality we want to wash our hands and not get sick at least not get sick as much so we are drawn as a species to try and figure out the causality of what goes on in life that's perfectly natural it's perfectly healthy but you need the Aristotelian mean in these things. So if you never try and provide any causality, right, that you're trying to figure out, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, okay, why is it that I'm drawn to doomed people, right? Okay, well, it's maybe to do with my mom, maybe to do with being a caregiver, some sign of the box of repetition, compulsion, whatever. That's good. I mean, that's fantastic, right? It's really, really important to try and figure out the causality. So if you don't figure out any causality, you just bounce around like a pinball from stimulus and response, usually historical, usually unconscious. So you want to find some causality, but you've got to walk up that seesaw and stop in the middle. Because if you go too far, then we go from self-ownership to superstition. Ah, there is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. And then we start looking at tarot cards as readers of the future, and we start uh, having magical thinking. You end up with OCD or something like, I can't step on a crack, I'll break my mother's back. So you do want to focus on causality to where you can, but you don't want to overleap causality to superstition because then the randomness of the world ends up controlling you and you lose any rational free will. And there is that, that temptation and mysticism that I've seen in, in some of my relatives. And it's just like, and just like Pierce, you know, they, they're they all like, I'm a life coach, but their lives are falling apart. And I'm like, I don't think I would want you as my life coach because you live in oh, yeah, a trailer. I remember, uh, I remember one woman who was a kind of lifey, lifey, coachy person saying, you chose your parents for a reason. And it's like, dude, that, that is, uh, that, that is not, that's not how reality works. That's, you don't sort of sit there saying, ah, I think I'll choose that person to be my parent. That's, that's, that's taking causality and ownership way too far. It's just like, the, I mean, and the, the, the logical fallacy behind that, like some, you know, baby is up in the ether and it was like, yes, I do believe that this impoverished African family, yeah. you know, where the whole village is starving, that is my ideal 
parents or like, oh, yes, this abusive family with like an absent father. That is my ideal. Like, to Or even... your, your, your friend whose single mom brought pedophiles into the home, the idea that he would know that was going to happen but would choose it anyway. Uh, yeah, that's like, just appalling, right? So we, we do want to look for causality for sure, but you've got to stop at the rational bounds of human will and, and of linear time and, and what we can predict and control, right? Because we do, you know, something like this happens and we try to find some causality. And sometimes that's a very helpful thing. In this situation, and, I can't see how it is. And and so I'm I'm a Christian. My cousin is a Catholic. So they... Catholicism is essentially the same. They just have some extra doctrine. I think it's just Christianity kind of with extra steps. But um, so in Christianity, you know, um, being brought up Christian, that the world is of the devil and, you know, heaven is God's domain. And um, the devil kind of does his own thing. God himself is omnipotent, but he doesn't exactly like pick and choose as we were talking earlier what babies get to live or die because well the world is of the devil so there are miracles in war in the world and tragedies in the world but i think that that can also be a pitfall into nihilism into thinking that oh well the world is of the devil i just have to focus on maybe my heavenly realm and if i pray enough or or that kind of thing then all my problems will go away and that's just a part where I, I struggle um, a little bit and because there are so many temptations around to try and find like the truth because I, I want to seek the truth wherever it leads me and um, but that that I, is to that is to reject suffering as an uh, important part of life Mm-hmm. And and it is. It is an important part of life. I mean, as I said to my daughter when she was young, she said, why is there pain? It's a good question. Why, why is there pain? Well, why does your toe hurt when you stub it so you don't stub it again? It's well, an aversive even... mechanism, right? It's an aversive mechanism. And the, to, to, to reject suffering is to reject Wisdom is to reject learning, is to reject growth. You know, like these old books I read by Stephen R. Donaldson called The Covenant Series, where the guy had uh, leprosy and he had to do what was called a VSE, a visual search of extremities. He had to go and check because he couldn't feel his nose. So he mm-hmm. had to check, oh, have I cut myself? Have I hurt myself? Do I have a sunburn? Did I bruise myself? He couldn't tell. And so in the absence of the physical pain that gives us feedback on good for body or bad for body, we end up becoming kind of OCD, checking everything all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, you know, I mean, I hope that she will choose to have another baby. And without a doubt, not that she did anything wrong with this baby, but she's going to be extra super duper, you know, like a lot of people don't remember. You want to handle a baby, go wash your hands. Oh, yeah. Like, I just, I can't even imagine, like, not doing that, especially... And she may have done all of that. Of course. I'm sure she did, right? But but a lot of people don't sure remember that, that babies did. are really, really, really fragile. Well, and I don't even think that the baby really had a whole lot of exposure to people outside of the immediate family. Because, I mean, my my family is a very, very large 
kind of a, a traditional Catholic style. Like I have um, like 42 or more first cousins. So by blood, because my, my father, uh, including, has 11 brothers and sisters. So, um, but but me and this cousin, the cousin that had the baby, we were we were really close growing up. The rest of us were kind of spread out. So, um, I think that she just had exposed the baby to maybe like the immediate family. I don't know of any of my family that. I mean, it, it's just most likely extraordinarily bad luck. It seems that way because I was doing just some research and it was like less than 1% of babies die from this kind of, I was looking at. Oh, even if they're infected, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because even so, because there's a lot that you can do if you know, like say if it's like uh, HVS2, most of the time, I mean, it was HVS1, but like if, if they know that the mother would be, had had HVS2 in, in the past, they would do a cesarean and so that limits yeah well, there's the antivirals you can put into the baby baby's bloodstream after birth and so on right yeah there's all different kinds of and they just know to kind of look for it and of course like it's just kind of crazy and you know sometimes hospitals are the dirtiest places in the world because i knew um working at a hospital because oftentimes you have problems with MRSA, which is a staph infection that's highly contagious. And then also uh, when I was working at the hospital, C. diff was a, a problem that went through our floor, which is a, a gastrointestinal reaction to the heavy use of antibiotics because it will, the antibiotics used in the hospital will kill off the good bacteria in your gut. And then when you are exposed to bad bacteria, the C. diff bacteria, then it will just wreak havoc on the system with like GI distress. So like the whole nursing staff, you know, have to really like halfway, like step into a fumigation chamber to try to decontaminate in between patients just to reduce the risk of spread. But when you're dealing with microorganisms and micro you know viruses that you know scientists still are torn to whether properly like say if they're alive or not because they have aspects of life but aren't technically alive um just like the amount of carefulness you have to be all the time and even with i know it was a big scare when i was in high school in biology like not to let pregnant women even clean out the cat box because right right toxoplasmosis right Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah, just, like, it's definitely made me, like, more scared and more cautious about who I plan on, you know, if when I become pregnant, like, who I'm going to let around my baby within the first, you know, two weeks to month or year of life. Yeah, and, I mean, given that over time hundreds of thousands of people are going to listen to this, what can we get out of the terrible death of this child is perhaps uh, other people um, will be more careful and possibly dozens of babies' lives could be saved. It doesn't make anything okay, obviously, but it's is this the best, the good that we can get out of this kind of situation? And if you can aim to get the best good out of a terrible situation, I don't know what else you can work with. I, I, that, that to me is... is um, it's not. I hate to say, well, it's the best outcome, because there's no such thing as the best outcome in this kind of tragedy. But 
it's the best that can be done or, or the least the least worst, if that makes sense, that can be done. Well, and it's it's kind of like um, some of like the people that come on your show that it's like a cautionary tale, like, hey, please don't do things the way that I did things because right. I was I was wrong for a long time. I mean, this is it's not a cautionary tale, of course, because it was uh, not it's basically kind of an accident because it's not like it was really out of neglect because could have done everything right and things still wrong like things yeah. still wrong happen but I think getting mothers and people to openly talk about grief is really important especially for maybe some of the the male listeners that are listening because I know like my my family in in the males and even my husband to a certain extent the pressure to be stoic and to kind of harden your heart against these things and to be a pillar of strength um i think that is sometimes a little bit too much like they they try to push their feelings down so tight to allow other people to kind of feel around them that they just condense their own feelings until it manifests in in a in another area um, yeah, and we, we do want to be acutely aware of the passage of time. And uh-huh. given that this, this poor child had so little time in the world, hopefully it helps us just remember to embrace and, and enjoy. and Or if we're not enjoying, at least richly suffer and uh-huh. try and gain the lessons out of that suffering. Life is a, it's a pretty serious business. And suffering is... It's the twin of life. It, it is not, suffering is not the opposite of life. Suffering is entwined in life. And there is an old saying about mental health, that, that like mental dysfunction almost always results from the avoidance of legitimate suffering. And your suffering, your cousin, of course, is suffering infinitely more. And it is something that we should embrace. It is something that we should recognize as it's the price of life the price of life is suffering you know you love someone they're going to die before you you may die before them you're going to suffer you know well, you, and- you you have a child you suffer that anxiety of the world the future your child how things are going to go and um that there is no path to depth or richness or wisdom without accepting suffering and yet we have tried to inoculate ourselves against suffering through uh, distraction, through uh, uh, drugs, through promiscuity, through inattention, through vanity. Um, that's all just like putting a house of cards up on a train track thinking you're going to stop the train. I always, because I'm, I'm remembering when you were, when you first started to talk about the death of your father, which I uh, was profoundly, you know, sorrowful for you and I know that you weren't at particularly close but what you said was maybe not exactly in this you know verbatim but you know the greater the love you have for someone in life the greater the suffering so since 
you and your father won't, weren't particularly close. You didn't, you still felt an impact, but it was different than like, say if, you know, someone that you really cared about was to pass away. And there's almost a temptation there that, you know, I love this person so much. I feel like I can't, you know, live without them, but you have to be grateful for the love that you had in life. And you have to, I feel, hold on to that love despite the grief and the pain of, of them passing. Well, otherwise, and, otherwise you surrender everything that's great about life before you're actually dead. And, and I've seen so many people that walk around as if they were dead because something has, has happened to them and they, they let it into them and it just hollows them out. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to surrender one clod of my funeral soil before I have to. I don't want to give anything up out of fear that I don't have to. And I think that's beautiful. And I, I want, I want to feel that too. And I think that I do. And I want other people to feel that because there's this like constant parade of just distraction in front of you. And then you blink and then your life is over. <laughs> Cause well, I, I remember, sorry to interrupt, but I remember a story of a friend of mine from many years ago. He had, he was getting married and his mother had been always this petty witch of a human being, you know, stirring up trouble and, and all of that and being difficult and squelching on everybody else's potential joy and all of that. Are and, you sure you don't mean my mother? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> long lost, long lost friend. But so we got married and he kind of invited his mother out of an obligation, uh, but she proved to be really, really difficult. So he didn't exactly disinvite her, but he said, I'm fine if you don't come. And he kind of thought she wasn't going to come. And then she showed up with, you know, one of her tag-along remora jaw friends, you know, like those little pilot fish that, that snap up the scraps of a shark's meal. And she came and she demanded this and she demanded that and she was dressed inappropriately and then she drank too much. And like she was just there to wreck the day. I mean, just a, a bitter person who sees happiness and immediately wants to, you know, like you have a fire and you're going back in the house or you're going back in the tent, you have this fire. You've got to make sure the embers are out. Otherwise, it could be dangerous, right? So she's like, oh, there's a fire of happiness. Well, I, I can't let that go because that's dangerous. So I got to pour as much water and vitriol on it to put it out. And I just remember that story. I remember him telling me that story. I was, I was in my mid-20s. And I just remember thinking, he was older than me. And I remember thinking, gosh, so you can still be in your 60s and 70s. I think she was in her late 60s or early 70s. You can be that age and you can still be a complete and total joy-killing minister of doom and gloom from the kingdom of woe is me. Like you can just be a complete joy killer even at that age. There's no guarantee that you gain any wisdom from getting older. You might just entrench your pettiness and become more uh, more destructive, or as the old saying in, in uh, King Lear, that thou shouldst not have been old before thou were wise. And the idea that life could just continue on that way, or I remember being on a bus once and seeing some 60-year-old woman having a stupid fight about nothing with her 80-year-old mother, mm -hmm. and just thinking, I bet you they've been doing this for 70 years. You know, uh, that, that's, 
She's been doing that for, yeah, 60, 80, 50 years. They've been doing it for 50 years, right? Half a century, they've just been having these same stupid fights and nothing's changed and nothing's jumped the track. And somehow their very obvious mortality, I mean, the older woman was kind of croaking. You could see sort of one foot in the grave and this swirly dark whirlpool of death coalescing up around her legs. But uh, you could just completely miss that you're going to die. You could just completely miss that you don't have forever to correct your mistakes. And uh, I just remember looking at that thinking, oh, man, I cannot, I cannot, I, I, I can't end up like that. <laughs> I don't care what happens in my life, but I can't end up like that. Oh, I, I see that, too, because, um, like, I, I admit fault a lot when I'm wrong. And, you know, my husband will do the same and we will work together to, you know, build an even better relationship. Like We've been together for eight years and I feel like it's only gotten better the longer we've been together. But I was thinking about that the other day about how people can just live their lives like that and I I broke it down to three categories you can correct me if you if you disagree with this premise but it was just something I was thinking about I broke them down and this was just like not just with life suffering um but just kind of like um like political laziness and and just like um lack of self-knowledge but I broke it down into the ignorant who they don't know what to believe because they've been told a lot of different things all their life it's kind of like an npc class and then there is the the willfully ignorant who they know that they have a problem but they choose not to deal with it they just they willful um like by a, by a choice they remain ignorant and they're just totally opposed to any other facts that you might bring to the table, any counter arguments and aren't willing to change their opinion at all. And then there's the, uh, the pretend ignorant that they, um, they really know the truth, but they, they won't admit it to, mm. to anyone. And it's kind of like, um, certain political affiliations, like say with welfare, uh, for example, like they know that it's bad for the poor in the long run, but they pretend that it's a solution um, for impoverished people. They pretend that it's going to help and they get the ignorant or the willfully ignorant to, to buy in at really the expense of their own freedoms or their own self-knowledge or their own self-improvement. And right. so that's how I was, I was rationalizing it the other day. I thought that. Yeah. It's like the, um, the ignorant, the avoidant and the sophists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see that. Well, listen, um, I'd love to chat more, but I'm cognizant of the listener's time. Um, is, I mean, obviously, you know, I can't give you a speech. It wouldn't make any point if I did. But is at least um, this kind of perspective helpful in terms of thinking about what you might say? Yeah, I think that it, I think it's really profound. I think, um, of course, I think the funeral will be really sad. And I'm sure that there will be a lot of people. It's going to be a very, you know, high stressful time. So I think that, you know, I'll, I'll give my condolences and, um, I'll, I'll think about what I want to say. And then, um, maybe when things calm down for her, um, just thinking about the importance of maintaining the relationships that really matter, I'll just, you know, reach out 
to her on yeah, a yeah. more just, just personal how, level. How are you doing? What, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, how did you sleep? Did you have any dreams? How's your heart today? All of that kind of follow-up, I think, is really important when people are suffering like this. Well, I mean, in general as a whole, but, but particularly in these situations. Well, especially like the long term, because in the different kind of, you know, grief things that I've gone through, it's kind of like a hot potato thing. It's like everyone jumps on it right away. And then, oh, like, yeah, the then it's passes. gone, right. And I, I don't think that's that's not how grief, because even, you know, the Jewish people had a tradition that if a spouse had died, then they grieve for a year to two years. And that is your official grieving period. And we kind of lost that. Now you're lucky to get three days off of work. <laughs> Um, so I think that And there's that always just, this vague annoyance is like, well, aren't you better yet? I mean, <laughs> yeah, aren't you aren't you better yet? Like how how come you're not just like oh yeah, and it, it's different cuz different people deal with grief in different ways. Some people like to work and some people, you know, can't even get out of bed and it's like you were talking about that chronic fatigue is also a I mean, last night you were talking about it as a um, you know, a, a pen, potential long-term effect of COVID, but it's also a, a potential long-term effect of grief. And so making sure that your family members are like taking care of themselves and uh, doing all that. So I think if I put my own personal touch and we, and we were close when we were kids, so kind of maybe rekindling that. Yeah. Uh, you you could have a renewed commitment to a relationship that, that can, again, what, what good can you extract out of this, 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 this difficulty? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I want to exp uh, just express my absolute gratitude and so happy to talk to you and thank you so much for your help and, Thank you for giving me this, you know, little time on the platform that you worked so diligently to to make. You're so very we welcome, and uh, please people. let me. Please, I mean, probably just don't even bother passing along my condolences. I think they're implicit, but because uh, uh, mm -hmm. she probably doesn't want to, you know, some stranger or whatever. But I really do appreciate your time today, and and do do drop me a line and let me know how it goes. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.